If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 33. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we would love to give you one as a gift if you just raise your hand. Or we have Genesis journals. If you're using one of those, uh, it is on page 150 today. We've been traveling through the book of Genesis. Genesis means the beginning. So we're looking at the beginning of the story of everything, the beginning of all of creation with the God who created all things. And then he set apart a people for himself from the children of Abraham. And we are in the middle of the life of Jacob and Esau. These are grandchildren of Abraham. And uh, as a bit of a recap, if you haven't been with us, Jacob, his whole life has been a deceiver, uh, somebody who's connived and postured to get what he wanted out of life. But he is the one who was from before he was born, had the blessing of God set on his life, that even as the younger, he was given the birthright and the blessing of God over and above his brother Esau. That didn't stop Jacob from posturing to deceive his brother and to work Esau out of his birthright when they were about 16 years old. And it's hard to track how old these brothers are throughout the story, uh, but when they were 77 years old was when Jacob deceived Esau out of the blessing. So... It might be a, a news alert shocker to some of you that these guys are actually getting up there in age as this story is going along. Um, Jacob has traveled to find uh, a wife from among his mother's family and found two wives because he was deceived and got some of his own medicine from his father-in-law. And he's had many children by this point, and now he is traveling back to the land of promise with, despite a lot of hardship, the blessing of God. God has blessed him greatly, and he is seeking out Esau for reconciliation. And last week we saw that in the midst of coming to seek out Esau for reconciliation, reconciliation, Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. Remember we said last week, Jacob's the more genteel uh, food network watching brother, and Esau's the skillful, skillful hunter who is more like, uh, Bear Gorillas meets the gladiator. So this is, this is not feeling cozy to Jacob. He's filled with fear. The Word of God says he is in straits and he's terrified. But right before he meets Esau, we saw that God showed up in the night and wrestled Jacob. As God often does with us, he is both wrestles against our old nature, our parts of him, our parts of ourselves that are offensive to God and sinful against God, and he will produce trials and hardships that will be used of God to empty us of ourselves. So he both fights against our old nature and fights for us to overcome through those trials so that in the end, we're more transformed and like Christ because of it. So today, we're picking up, I'm going to start as a little bit of a recap in chapter 32, but we're picking up uh, mainly in Genesis chapter 33. Well, this chapter uh, in the focus of today's message is all about reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is, it's, it's hard. We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about being made at peace with people who have hurt you, with people who have wronged you, with humbling yourself and making peace with other people. So, at risk of sort of a spoiler alert of how this chapter shakes out, I, I'm telling you that in advance so that you can be thinking about actual people that you need to reconcile with as we walk through this message. But before we do, let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts. Father, we bow before you. You are indeed the ruler and the king of all the earth. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is none like you. There is none except for you. No God to your right or to your left. Lord, we marvel and tremble that we get to have the word of the living God open to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. Lord, speak. And may you find in us humble hearts that are eager to listen and to receive and to obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I'm going to begin with a bit of a recap from chapter 32, because if you don't tie in the the story in chapter 33 to what happens in chapter 32, you'll miss what's actually going on. And so remember, when Jacob hears that Esau is coming out to meet him with 400 men, his first response is to go to God in prayer and remind God of the covenant that God had made with Jacob and of the promises that God had given him at Bethel. So in chapter 32, verse 9, Jacob cries out to God, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. So you can't miss right there the covenant language that Jacob is appealing to God the Father with. He's reminding him of the covenant relationship that he had made with his father Abraham and with Isaac. This was a relationship with God on the basis of a blood sacrifice. So we see this covenant that is cut with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And it may be 17. You have to go back and look. And God makes this relationship with Abraham where he knocks Abraham out in a dead sleep and God himself walks through these pieces and it's this picture of God creating a relationship with him on the basis of his own activity while Abraham is asleep and does nothing. God makes this one-way relationship and brings Abraham into a covenant with himself and promises to do him good. He's promised Abraham the land and the coming offspring, and that through him he would bless all the nations of the earth. And God extends and establishes his covenant with Isaac, Abraham's son, and then again with Jacob. So these are men whose families are living in relationship with God on the basis of a promise that was made to Abraham and on the basis of a sacrifice that was made before they were born. So Jacob is coming to God and appealing to God on the basis of this covenant. And he says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he's appealing to God and pleading for deliverance and reminding God of his promise, saying, do what you have said, God. So verses 13 through 20 describe Jacob putting together almost a sacrifice of sorts. He is putting together 550 plus animals as a present to give to his brother Esau, and he's doing so out of sheer terror. He, he is putting this gift together. In verse 20, it says, he, he's telling his servants what to say to Esau and saying, these are all for you. They're a present sent to my Lord Esau and your servant Jacob is behind us. And in verse 20, he says, he did this that I might appease Esau with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So this is, there's this sacrifice in this offering language. Now in in those days, uh, even pagan worshipers would give, would offer sacrifices to their gods to ward off any kind of vindication or judgment, right? So this was, this was almost a sacrifice to somebody who had the right to execute vengeance on him. And he was hoping to appease him, but this is all sacrificial language, uh, Later, he tells Esau to accept his present, and that term for present is a term that's used for an offering in the story of Cain and Abel, and it's used to describe offerings in Leviticus. So it's very much carrying with it this connotation of this is an offering, something to appease you, something to mollify his anger and make him gracious to Jacob. In his reasoning for his gift, when he says, He's hoping to appease Esau with this present. The language is literally to appease his face. It's like in the scriptures when the blessing of God is described as him making his face to shine upon us and lifting up his countenance on us and being 
gracious to us. So you sum all of this up. Jacob is putting together this extravagant offering in order that by his own blessing that he stole from Esau, he might of his own resources earn or gain this forgiveness, this atonement from Esau to cover his guilt. He's putting forth a sacrifice in a sense so that he can buy the reconciliation. So then we go to this next scene in Genesis chapter 33, and we're going to see the grace of God in reconciliation. The grace of God in reconciliation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 33. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So right up until this point, Jacob is full-on expecting an attack from Esau. You can see that even in him positioning his wives and children in these tranches, right, in order of importance and love. And Joseph is the only son that's mentioned, kind of a foreshadow of the scenes that are coming. But he is anticipating that Esau is going to attack. And so he puts what's most precious to him at the back. Now he himself goes in front, which... Small plug for the men's retreat. That's what men do. So come to the men's retreat, May 28th and 29th, and, and learn to be a man that goes in front in protection and provision for your wives and your children. Wife and children. <laughs> Different passage. Um, I'm speaking to multiple men. Multiple men. Okay. So in verse 4, yeah, sorry for all the parents whose kids are saying, what did he say? You're welcome. Um, look at verse 4. This is this massive climax and, and shift. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the, children, the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise draws near and bows down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present, my offering from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dwelt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Now, if you had never heard this story before, and you're reading this, this is a shocking turning point in the narrative where you're full on expecting Esau to bring war. And what you see instead is, but Esau ran to him and he hugged him and fell on his neck and they wept together. The last time we saw Esau, he was waiting for Isaac to die so that he could hunt Jacob down like an animal and kill him for how he had betrayed him. And Esau makes it plain by his attempts to refuse Jacob's gift that it was not Jacob's gift That was what appeased him. It was, in this passage, you have grace or grant or favor mentioned five times in Exodus 33. And it is clear that it was not this Jacob's efforts or his offering or his gift of what he could produce from himself that was what appeased or propitiated Esau's anger. It was the grace of God. This ties back to that moment in Exodus 32 where Jacob is before God crying out to him on the basis of a blood covenant that was made before he was ever born. And he says, God, because of this covenant and because I am in this family that you have called to yourself and you have set apart for your namesake, I am asking for you to deliver me. You promised this and now I'm holding you to this promise. And it is because 
of God's grace and the Lord remembering his covenant with Abraham and extending that kindness to Jacob that Esau is appeased and that peace is made. Verse 10 of chapter 33, you read, it says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. This is what grace does. I want you to marvel at this with me. Only the grace of God, because of this covenant, this grace is attached to the covenant, right? That in relationship with God, because of this covenant made before he was born, Jacob experiences the grace of God. And the grace of God is so powerful and so encompassing that it can turn even the unholy and the profane Esau into a picture of the grace of God into a picture of God himself, where Jacob can look at his brother and say, seeing your face because of how you have accepted me, because of how you have forgiven me, it's like seeing the face of God himself. This wasn't what Jacob deserved. It was grace. It was undeserved forgiveness. And Jacob looks at Esau in the face and says, this is godlike of you. This is godlike. Now, in order to really understand how it's godlike, we have to understand the holiness of God. You only need reconciliation from people that you've been estranged from. I don't need to make reconciliation with my wife, Kayla. We're already at peace. All of you in the room, as far as it concerns me, we're at peace. And if we're not, come and talk to me afterwards. So I don't feel the need for reconciliation with you. But when there has been a betrayal or an estrangement, there has a need, there's a need that's created for a making of peace again, of being brought into peace. Sin estranges people from God. And it's not just sin as we defined it because you may have walked into the room feeling like according to your standard of morality or your standard of righteousness, you are a good person. And if you asked any of your, your friends, they would all say that you're great. But sin is a violation of the standard of God. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That nobody in all of creation has honored God as God. Or given thanks and worshipped God as he is due. Or not worshipped God alone, but God and something else. I want you to see that this guilt that Jacob felt was real, and he's terrified because of it. He knows that he has sinned, and when he's coming to meet the one that he sinned against, he is terrified and in great fear. And how much more so sinful people before a holy God. If you're really going to step back and think about the, the way that our life has violated the commands of God and how we have not worshiped God according to his due. Apart from Christ, there is no peace. There is no reconciliation. There is only, as the writer of Hebrews says, the terrifying expectation of judgment. And if we just quiet out all the noise and all the things that we use to distract us, we sit alone with our guilt and we realize that we actually are alone before a holy God and the fear is paralyzing. And I wonder how, how many, if you've never placed your trust in Christ, are like Jacob where you're putting forth all the best gifts and all your best days and all of your good intentions, hoping that they're going to be enough to appease the anger of this one that is inevitably coming. But in this scene, there is depicted the drama of the gospel. And it has echoes all the way back from a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus describes the parable of the prodigal son. And it has a lot of the same picture as what you see with this reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. I love this story because I, I wonder if you haven't spent... Uh, much time in the Word of God or much time in church, what you think the Father is like. And I remember sitting down with a group of young guys, late 20s, had never set foot in a church before in their life. And we're sitting in a circle and I say, when you consider God 
or when you think about God, what do you think that God is like? Most had not given him a second thought. Some thinks he's some, you know, distant force or a judge just waiting to judge them, which is true. That's not far off. But that's not the full picture. When Jesus came, he came to reveal God as Father. Listen to this from Jesus in Luke 15. Verse 11, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. The dad divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he had come to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the father's heart. Jesus came to reveal the Father's heart towards that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And this is a blood-bought reconciliation. This is not just a nice story. This is true that when the son got hungry, he realized that he could not find the peace and the forgiveness and the joy and the satisfaction, this hole that he had in his heart. He could not find what he was looking for in all the things that he was chasing in the world He got hungry, and that hunger led him to a humble repentance that would go back to the Father and say, Father, I have sinned. There can be no reconciliation apart from a humble repentance that recognizes its sinfulness before a holy God. But when he comes back to him and says, Father, I have sinned, let me just take my spot as a hired servant or a slave, the Father says, he he runs to meet him. It's the same picture that we see with Esau running to meet Jacob in the place where you expect to meet terrifying judgment and war. There is forgiveness and mercy and acceptance. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost, but in order to be what Romans says, both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, he had to become the perfect substitute in the place of our sins, where he would go to the cross and make the payment that was needed for us to be able to have peace with God. When we talk about reconciliation with God, we cannot talk about peace being made with God apart from the blood of Christ. There is no reunion with God and acceptance from God apart from Jesus' payment in our place. Peace and reconciliation to God, the kind of appeasing that Jacob was seeking from Esau, can only come through Christ's acceptable offering on your behalf to the Father. By his sacrifice in our place, he made a way for full forgiveness and full reconciliation. So look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 23. In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm going to keep reading, but I don't want you to miss this. Jesus came to reconcile man to God, and he did so 
That peace only comes, this text says, by the blood of his cross. So the cross demonstrates two huge realities for us. One is that there is no peace without the cross. So apart from coming to Christ, apart from embracing his forgiveness by faith and accepting his sacrifice in your place, there is only the war that you have declared against God by your sin and independence from him. There, this is a reality that we must accept before we can embrace Jesus' forgiveness. I was talking to a friend earlier this week, and she was saying that she didn't know if she believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one came to the Father but through him, and that maybe there was going to be some other way that God would forgive or God would accept a relative that she dearly loved because she couldn't bear the thought of a relative that she loved not embracing Jesus, and she just couldn't believe or get her mind around God pouring out his judgment on somebody that she loved and viewed to be a good person. But that is because we are so prone, we look horizontally at the people around us and we see people that aren't too different from us. We have more empathy with sinners than we do with a holy God. So we can't fathom the idea that God is holy and that sin must be punished, that his eyes are too pure to even look on evil. And that our sin has not only estranged us from a holy God, but it has declared war against God. And that apart from Jesus coming to be the perfect sacrifice in our place and shedding his blood on the cross, there is no peace with God. That's why in verse 21, Paul continues, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So this is the miracle of the cross is that, yes, we were at war with God, and if you were outside of Christ, you are still at war with God, alienated from God, hostile in mind, in truth. When you really come face-to-face with the gospel and with who God really is, the unbelieving world and the unbelieving mind is hostile to God. That Jesus is the only way to the Father, that, that your sin creates war with God that can only be appeased by the sacrifice of Christ in your place is offensive to the world and to a mind that is hostile towards God and has been estranged from God. But he says the sacrifice of Christ in your place is so rich with mercy and so effective that this was all of us hostile in mind, alienated, engaged in evil deeds, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death all who come to him by faith in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. These are the same people that were alienated, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. And now, just by the blood of Christ, he makes you holy and blameless and above reproach. But it only comes through Christ and the reconciliation that he has purchased for us. And he says, he will present you holy and blameless and above reproach if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Faith in Christ through the gospel is the doorway into reconciliation with God. And there is no other door. Jesus is the door of the sheep. And apart from entering into his saving work by faith, there is no peace with God. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, the gospel has made you by rescuing you and bringing you near by the blood of Christ, has made you a minister of reconciliation so that you would go out and proclaim peace to all who would repent and turn to Christ by faith. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. That is not like a, an unrelated add-on verse to this reconciliation. He's saying, God the Father, because Jesus went willingly to the cross, made Jesus the very embodiment of sin. And as he hung on that cross in your place, he took all of your sin on his shoulders in himself, and God poured out the punishment that you deserve on Christ so that by taking your place, you might receive the blessing of God that only Jesus deserves for his righteousness, and he would make you the very righteousness of God in Christ. And so that's why he's saying we have this message of the gospel of Christ suffering in our place and taking our place so that we could be brought near to God. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus, that's what we are doing this morning, imploring you, pleading with you. Your sin has separated you from a holy God, and he is offering to you today pardon and forgiveness and peace. And he is offering that because Jesus made a once and for all sacrifice in your place so that by his wounds you could be healed. But it comes as he reveals to you your need and you come to him, Father, I've sinned. <laughs> I, I have enjoyed and chased things that are not honoring to you. I have engaged, I've been alienated in mind and engaged in evil deeds, but I am believing that Jesus's once and for all sacrifice was for me. And I want to bow before you. I want to repent and turn from my own way and from my independence. And I want to die to myself, to my own authority and embrace Jesus as God. That is what it looks like to repent and believe in Jesus. It's not by our own labors and efforts. It's not by putting forth our best gift like Jacob. That's why Romans 4 says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The kind of appeasing that Jacob was seeking from Esau is found in placing our trust in Jesus apart from works of the law. And any who have embraced his forgiveness can say with Paul, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Real peace. And it, that won't lead you to worship unless you realize the war that you were in or the judgment that you actually deserve. But now, as those who have been made at peace with God, we are commanded by God, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with all men. So this is the shift in our, in our time together today that, yes, we have received reconciliation with God by the grace of God, all who have come to Christ by faith. But he commands us as those who have been given peace from God to extend and make for peace with other people as far as it concerns us. This language is from Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Or Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Like with Esau, your forgiveness of other people you pursuing peace with other people can demonstrate to people the forgiveness that is available to them in Christ Jesus. So he commands us to live at peace with people and to be a people who forgive up to 70 times 7 because we are a people who have been forgiven much. And a people who have been forgiven much, love him much, and, and become like him. But this kind of reconciliation, this kind of Humbling ourselves before people is incredibly painful. It comes at great cost to yourself. And I want you to see this image of Jacob who has had his leg 
devastated by the touch of God, and he's walking with a limp. And as he's coming before Esau, he's bowing before him seven times. And it's, he, he can't even walk without great pain, and he's getting prostrate on the ground before his brother as a sign of humility and submission. But he's able to humble himself before his brother because he's just come out of this wrestling match with God where God had humbled him deeply. It is a mark of God's touch and the grace of God in our lives when you before other people can humble yourself before them and seek forgiveness and peace with them. True reconciliation between us and others requires the same kind of grace-produced humility. 1 John chapter 4 says that we love God because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I wonder if you believe that. That if you don't love your brother who you can see, you can't claim to love God who you can't. Because if we step back and really think about this, it's way easier for us to love God than it is for us to love people. And it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we love God and that we just have a hard time loving people. But this text says that When you love God, He transforms you for a faith-filled obedience to God, and He's called you to love of God and love of neighbor. So we can't claim that we're loving God and obeying His commandments while ignoring His commandments. We forgive because He's first forgiven us, and whoever's been forgiven by God must also forgive his brother or his sister. We cannot claim humility before God if it doesn't translate into humility before people. If he has humbled us by his grace, then we have to humbly pursue becoming gracious and merciful like him, where we live in the shadow of the forgiveness that we've received in Jesus. Because you have to ask yourself, who has wronged you more than you have wronged him? Who has hurt you more than your sin has hurt him? Who is more guilty than you have incurred guilt before him? And if he forgives us of all of our sin and all of our debt, having nailed it to the cross, then he calls us to take our unforgiveness and to take it to the cross where he's taken the rest of our sin and to nail it there. We, we must not be like the servant that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 18, who's forgiven of millions of dollars worth of debt. And then he goes out and he holds hostage a fellow servant for the equivalent of $10 debts. Jesus says, When the master found out about that, he summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you of all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him up to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, listen to this, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is as real of a promise as John 3.16. We cannot pick and choose our favorite parts of Scripture, the parts that we want to believe. He's saying, if I have forgiven you, then go and forgive. How many times? 70 times 7. Not 490 for all the accountants in the room. He's saying, he's saying I want you to do this limit, limitlessly. I want you to be reconciled to man and forgive as I have forgiven you. I've forgiven you an infinite debt, so go and forgive. Matthew chapter 6, right after he's teaching them to pray, God, help us to forgive, our, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. He concludes the prayer and then says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I want you to think about this. 1 John 1, 9, so clear. If we say we haven't sinned, we are a liar and His truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And that is an ongoing promise that if you live with unrepentant sin in your life as a believer, you create an estrangement between you and your heavenly father that will be there until you deal with the sin. And you may learn just to make peace with the lack of fellowship with God and kind of go on oblivious wondering why God's not blessing your life or why you don't feel his presence anymore. Because you haven't gone back and dealt with this thing that he has shown you where you must confess your sin and seek his forgiveness in order to experience fellowship with God. But it could be that you don't experience fellowship with God and forgiveness from God because you're not extending forgiveness to your brother. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this is an urgent matter. It's, it's a better gift that you could give to God than whatever else you're bringing him. You can come in here and sing songs. You can give an offering to the branches offering. But what he really wants is for you to obey him in seeking peace and pursuing it. He says in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now what's striking about that text is that he doesn't say, if you have something against somebody else, go and make it right. He says, if you're mindful that your brother has something against you, get up from the offering, don't take communion, go outside, make the phone call, make it right. As far as it concerns you. Now, you cannot, you're not in charge of whether or not this reconciliation is reciprocated. So that's why the scripture says, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with all men. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 14, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. So peace with people is not something that we just drift towards or that just comes by accident or that comes as we're just walking with God and walking by his spirit and seeking God and we just think that peace is going to happen. He says, you have to hunt this down, seek peace and pursue it. And this language for pursue means to hunt down, to, with, to pursue with the plans of overtaking it and obtaining it. It's the same language that's used in Hebrews 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. So I want to take a little aside right here because if you hold those two things together, you'll see a caution there. And I want to caution you to beware of counterfeit peace. Counterfeit peace. There is a kind of peace that has more to do with pleasing people and maintaining a status quo and not offending people. This is in a, in a world that gets offended by everything. If, you, if peace to you or maintaining peace is not upsetting anyone, then you will avoid all claims to truth, all proclamations of righteousness, all declarations of what the Word of God has actually said in the name of keeping peace. And the enemy wants to keep God's people in no man's land, where you have nice relations with everybody, just have generally peaceful conversations, and you're just kind of keeping a status quo, but there's no real reconciliation and no real fellowship. If you're not careful, this is what life can be like for you in the body of Christ. Just general status quo, not upsetting the apple cart too much. But what ends up happening, if that's your MO, is that sin goes unchecked. And we, we have no ability to come to a brother or sister and to rebuke them for their sin. Because it's seen as not keeping peace or it's seen as judgmental. So this is not a universal call just to niceness or just to maintaining the status quo and trying to keep everybody from being generally too upset. This is a, a call to pursue giving and receiving of rebukes from people when we're wrong, of actually confronting sin, but a call to pursue real humble apologies and real forgiveness for real sin and to have real peace 
So as far as it concerns us, in the confines of walking humbly with God in His truth, be at peace with all men. So this passage continues. I'm going to give you, this is just this next text, I'm going to give you a side note, and I'm going to tee Eric up for next week, hopefully, brother. If you look at verse 12 through 19, you see Jacob really walking in this. There's like this initial reconciliation, but then there's kind of this fake peace. The text goes on. Esau says, let us journey on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. And Jacob says to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. Now keep in mind, Jacob has no intention of meeting up with his brother, but this is what he's saying. Esau says, let me leave you some of the people who are with me. He says, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booths. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which, on which he had pitched his tent. So what's going on here? Jacob's still battling his old nature. I just read a quote. I told Townsend, I read it too late to incorporate into the message, and I'm going to try to, and I'm going to butcher it. Um, but A.W. Pink said, it's, it's one thing to have this miraculous touch from God and this manifestation of God's presence in our experience. It's another thing to actually walk out that experience with God by faith. So Jacob had this miraculous interaction with God, and God had done all this wrestling with him to empty of, him, of himself. But that doesn't mean that Jacob is going to be perfect on this side of heaven and that he's not still battling his old nature. So you can't assume that all of Jacob's actions that he's doing are righteous or are walking by faith. He is still a man marked by fear and by scheming. He tells his brother, I'll meet you in Seir. And then he goes to Succoth, which is in the exact opposite direction of Seir, by the way. And Succoth happens to be on the east side of the Jordan. So here he's on the border of the land of promise. And God appeared to him saying, I'm the God who appeared to you at Bethel. Now remember at Bethel, Jacob, God appeared to Jacob and made these promises to him. And Jacob said, if you keep your promises, then I will come back to this place and I will build an altar and I will worship you here. So God in chapter 31 shows up to him and says, I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel, arise and go back to your place. So implied in that is, I appeared to you at Bethel, be reminded of the promises that I've given you, now go back and keep your vow, keep your promises, and I will be with you. Apparently, he goes to Succoth instead, and he builds a house there. This is the only time any of the patriarchs are said to build a house. Hebrews 11 commends the patriarchs for living in tents because they were people who were sojourning in the land and just passing through, and they were looking to the city of God, a city that had foundations, whose maker and builder was God. They weren't getting comfortable in the land. They weren't trying to uh, realize the promise in the here and now. They knew that God was promising them a place in his coming kingdom. So here, by contrast, Jacob is actually building a house and setting up shop outside of the land of promise, and he stays there long enough for his young kids to be old enough to be college-aged or young adults in the next chapter. So he's here from anywhere from five to ten years, setting up a house in a place that is comfortable to him. On top of it, in chapter 35, we're going to find out that he's still tolerating his family, worshiping foreign gods. So God appears to him and he calls to his family to put away the strange gods that were among them. And Shechem was a place where God had promised Abraham the land. So he, he does finally enter into the land, but he stops in Shechem instead of going all the way to Bethel, which means house of God. So I want you to see here the dangers 
of delayed and partial obedience. You're going to see in the next chapter, the consequences are going to be devastating. But you can see how you would justify or use pragmatism to reason away your disobedience, right? God's delivered me. He's given me this great blessing. I've got all this livestock and Bethel's mountainous, and here's this place in the valley, and it's beautiful, and there's nobody here. Let's just set up shop here for a while, and we'll live here, and we'll be able to grow our family and wait till the kids get a little bit older. Oh, let's stop in Shechem when we do cross into the land. God made a promise to my dad here, and this is where we first got the promise about the land, and I'm going to stop right here. And besides, we can make these relationships with the kings of the land and bring them at peace with us. And the warning to us is obvious. Beware of delayed and partial obedience. And I think tying it into the content of this whole chapter leading up to this is God may be leading, leaning on you two very specific ways. One, you have yet to repent and place your trust in Jesus and you remain without peace with God when he has invited you in and said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Jesus says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. But you have yet to come to him. You've, you're still wavering between two opinions, still not ready to surrender your life to Jesus. And he says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart and don't wade in. Don't have this delayed obedience when the obedience may never come. But he may be telling you today specifically that you have to seek out forgiveness and peace with even that person. And you think, that's just too great of a cost. That's too much for me. I, I'll, I'll forgive them in my heart. I'll, I'll get down and ask God, God, you know that I can't reach out to them. You know that I can't seek peace or ask for forgiveness for that thing. After all, it was so long ago. Or after all, they would never receive me. After all, fill in the blank. And we can reason our way right out of obedience. And the consequences could be massive. As in, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you if you don't forgive from your heart. Now, remember, you're not responsible for how the other person responds. It says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But we are responsible for our part. And we are so good at deceiving ourselves and creating our own version of obedience to what Jesus said. So beware of delayed and partial obedience I want to end this on this. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a high note. It's kind of sad because Jacob is, he's worshiping God. God brought him into the land. I think he's setting up an altar in the wrong spot. He gets to Shechem. He sets up an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord like he told God that he would at Bethel. So it's partial obedience, but he is praising God for bringing him safely into the land. And Eric, you guys can come back up. But I just want to highlight this and end with this as a bit of an aside. I think far too often believers pray to God for this great deliverance. You pray for this healing or you pray for this, um, this job breakthrough or you pray for this conversation and then it goes massively better than you thought. And then we think, I was, I was worried for no reason. I was, just so, I was terrified for no reason. All of that fear, all of that worry, all that praying that I did, it just ended up not even being needed. It was crazy. And it's just complete and total unbelief. How often do we go back? How often do we make these prayers and then forget that we even prayed them when God comes through? And we forget to go back and set up an altar and worship God and really praise Him for His goodness in delivering us. But even worse, when God gives us the desire of our heart and answers us in ways that are far greater than we deserve, and we think it wasn't even him. I've had multiple moments in my life that were like that where you just don't know. But I remember pleading with the Lord that this uh, spot that my sister thought that she had was not cancer and fasting and praying and saying, God, 
take it away from her if you need to. Give it to me. And then she goes in, and it's benign and nothing. And then we think, oh, man, good thing. Uh, turns out I got worked up and fasted for no reason. Did we? And are we a people who really expect God to act? And when he does act, do we see it and do we worship? We have desperate need of being a people who see the wonderful works of God and who hear the voice of God and respond with face-down worship and with obedience. It can't be like the people where Jesus is praying, Father, glorify your name, and there's a voice from heaven that says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And people were like, was that thunder? God will often move and speak in a way that can only be perceived by eyes of faith. And it's on us to humble ourselves and to see it and to worship. So we're going to sing, but I want to invite you. It would be very easy to sing songs and to convince yourself that you're at peace with God when you're alienated and you feel it. You feel the distance. It could be that you feel a distance because you're not in Christ, that you've never come to Christ by faith and you've never embraced his forgiveness of your sins by faith and you've always offered to God the morality of your life or your good intentions, hoping that it was good enough for peace with God, but you feel the distance between you and God because it's real and it's there and God is angry with you for your sin and he loves you and so he's made a way for you to embrace his forgiveness in Christ. The cross shows that he's so angry against sin and sinners that he would have to crucify his own son. And it shows that he is so loving that he actually did so that sinners could be forgiven and made right with God. And so my call to you is a 2 Corinthians 5 call. We're imploring you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why wait for some future day when you can have peace with God today by the blood of Christ? For others of you, you may feel estranged from God or a distance between you and God because there's some sin in your life, maybe even unforgiveness among brothers and sisters or somebody that you know that he's pointed this out to you for a long time, but you're just filled with bitterness and with anger and are resistant to God's still small voice saying, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with all men. And until you do this, you're going to feel this distance. You're going to feel this fatherly displeasure as a form of discipline calling you to obedience. It's the loving father who does that. If my sons disobey their mother and are disrespectful to them, and they want to come and hang out with me, I'm not just going to act like everything's good until we deal with it. And once forgiveness has been sought and given and peace has been made, then we can restore normal father and son relationship. But it is, is the love of a father who doesn't allow us to live in our sin and act like we can just rejoice in the grace of God apart from repentance. So, Let's be a people who hear the voice of God today in, in whatever way he is calling you to. Let's repent. Let's draw near to God by the blood of his son. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I plead with your Holy Spirit to move in the hearts of those who are far from you. Lord, they may have walked in not even knowing that they had, by their own sin and independence of you, declared themselves enemies of God. Who is a God like you who would actually pardon sinful people, a people who have despised you to your face and lived our own way, and yet in Jesus you made a way for wicked people to become righteous sons and daughters. 
There is no grace like yours, no reconciliation like yours, Lord Jesus. So I pray that even today, Lord Jesus, you would reconcile people to yourself. Bring people to the Father. May they hear your voice and respond. Lord, I pray for your children called by your name that we would not mock the greatness of your grace or your forgiveness by receiving it from you and withholding it from others. Make us a gracious and a merciful people so far as it concerns us. Lord, keep us from a partial or delayed obedience. Today, if we hear your voice, let us respond. And if there are people in the room who need to hold back from singing this song so that they can leave and get up from their offering to go first be reconciled to a neighbor, a brother, a sister. I pray that you would move in their hearts to do that, God, and that we would not delay to obey what your Spirit is saying to your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.